You're listening to a sermon podcast from Agape Baptist Church, recorded live from our Sunday service. Good morning, church. The scripture reading for today is taken from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of a faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Testing. Good morning, church. The Lord bless you. So good to see all of you here physically at Dorset. And a big shout out to those of you who are watching from homes as well. Now, if you are new to Agape and you are following this live stream service, I invite you to scan the QR code that you see on screen. If you're here at Dorset, you are new here, you should have a card that you can scan the QR code from as well. We would love to connect with all of you. And we have got a free book for you as well if you are a newcomer scanning the code. So we look forward to hearing from you and connecting with you all more. Now, let me begin uh, today's uh, sermon with a story. Some of you might have heard of this person before. I'm going to show you his photo. This guy is called William Carey, who's known as the father of modern missions. Now, he was a British Baptist minister in the 18th century who felt compelled in his heart that the people who have not known the gospel from faraway lands need to hear it, and believers need to bring the gospel to them. So in 1792, he organized a missionary society, and in that inaugural message, he gave a stirring sermon from Isaiah 54, uh, called, for, calling for global missions, and he had this twofold division in that particular sermon. The twofold division had two points. These are the two points. Sorry, I can't, I need to see on screen. Yep, those are the two points. It says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Now, he himself went on to do wonderful work in India specifically. He founded the first degree-awarding university in India, Sarampur University, and he translated the Bible into Bengali, Hindi, Sanskrit, among various other languages. Now, when he eventually went home to the Lord in 1834, he left an incredible legacy as a Christian missionary. Now, sometimes people look at Carrie's quotes like this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And you may feel a little bit cynical sometimes. We think, this sounds so triumphalistic, sounds overly ambitious. Now, some, however, hear this and feel despair 
they wonder, who am I? What can I do? I don't dare to expect anything, right? I don't dare to attempt anything, let alone great things. Now, what if I tell you this morning that there is a biblical way to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God that is not about personal ambition, not what is great in your own eyes, but what is great in God's eyes. How do you get there? Now, as I open the word this week, I see the Lord revealing to me the answer. And the answer is hope, H-O-P-E, hope. I believe Carrie's words come from a deeply robust understanding of his hope in God, according to Scripture. And today I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9, and help you understand why this biblical hope in God can have such a powerful effect on each of us. Now, Peter, our dear apostle, whose greeting you heard last week, now breaks into excited praise as he begins the body of his letter. He declares in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is so excited because he has something remarkably wonderful to say to the believers about the hope of God. Now, you just heard it just now. He calls his hope in verse 3 a living hope, a living hope. And by that, he means this is a hope that is genuine and vital, not a hope that is empty and vain, not wishful thinking, not a dead hope, but a living hope. Now, from verses 3 to 9, I want to share with you today from today's text six characteristics of this living hope from God. Six characteristics of this living hope from God. And here's the first one. This hope is dependent on God's mercy. This hope is dependent on God's mercy. Now, verse 3, we read, According to His great mercy, this is God's mercy, he has caused, caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, note this is not just mercy. It's great mercy from God himself. You may recall last Sunday that I spoke about how Peter had used the experiences of the Jews to describe his Gentile, primarily Gentile readers. And here what Peter says regarding God's great mercy applies perfectly to the experiences of God's chosen people in the Old Testament as well. Now, God, back in the Old Testament, didn't choose the Israelites to take over the promised land because of their goodness. No, it was out of His mercy. How do we know that? Now, Moses says this to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9, verse 4. Let me read this to you. This is Moses speaking. He says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord is driving them out before you. Moses continues in verse 6, he's speaking to the Israelites, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And then Moses goes on to recount how the Israelites had provoked God to wrath with their rebellion in the wilderness and specifically their worship even of the golden calf. Now clearly, 
the reason the Israelites possess hope for the promised land was not because they deserve it. They were no better than the Canaanites, really, that were driven out. The reason for their hope was because of God's mercy towards them. It was according to God's great mercy. And here, Peter in this text is telling his Gentile readers, the hope you have is also dependent on God's mercy. So Peter is teaching us this. He says, don't think that there is something superior about you or that you deserve to have this hope. You know, that's the default pattern for every one of us, most people anyway, when it comes to hope. When you say you hope, actually many times our hope is dependent on ourselves, on what we think we deserve. So suppose you hope that you will do really well for exams, for example, or maybe you hope to find a spouse, you hope for people to recognize your talents, or you set your hopes on something good. You think about it, it is a good thing, you're setting your hopes on it. Now, this may be good things to hope for, but how do you know whether you're hoping in it rightly or not? Whether you're hoping in it rightly or not? By looking at how you respond when you don't get exactly what you hope for. If you find yourself frustrated, you find yourself angry, envious, your hope in your heart is basically saying to you, I deserve better than this. How could someone like me be experiencing this? It's not fair. I know there are a lot of bad things happening to all kinds of people out there in the world, but not me. I deserve better. Now, when you think this way, your hope is found in the wrong place. It could be in your own ability, your own intelligence, your own charisma, whatever. But no, none of us truly deserves better. None of us deserves better. Not the Canaanite, not the Israelite, not you, not me. Our ultimate hope is dependent on God's mercy. You know, if God truly gives us all that we truly deserve, it would be hell for all of us. But we're such great sinners. That's why in Luke 18, when Jesus compares in his parable the self-righteous Pharisee, and then there's this humble tax collector, Jesus said that the tax collector was the one justified before God. The tax collector had shouted, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And now that desperate tax collector is ready to receive the hope of God this way. Now listen, people. When the hope you possess is a hope that you know you do not deserve, that is the biblical hope dependent on God's mercy. Because you're saying to the Lord in your hope, Lord, I actually, I know, I don't deserve anything good as a sinner. Even if you don't give me anything else from now on, now until the end of my life, you have already given me more than I deserve. I'm not entitled to getting anything, but out of your mercy, you have given me your hope. And yes, I will hope in you. Now, when that is your heart posture, you are experiencing the living hope of God. And it's so important to get this right at the onset, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is this. This hope is a gift from God. This hope is a gift from God. Peter says this in verse 3. He says, He, meaning God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
Now, this is the language of spiritual new birth. That this is the hope for those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ. Many of you may remember this, that Jesus had told the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think Peter would have understood those words clearly when Jesus first said those words to Nicodemus. But now as he pens this letter to his readers, he recalls his master's words. You must be born again. There is no living hope without being born again. And consider how this is truly a gift from God. Now, if you have ever gone for an interview, and I believe quite a number of us here have, the interviewer might ask you, tell, tell me why you want to choose this job. Tell me why you're interested. Or tell me why you chose this course of studies that you did previously. Right? Not unexpected. But no interviewer will ever ask you, tell me why you chose to be born. They'll be like, if they ask you, like, oh, no, I, 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 didn't choose, I didn't choose to be born. My parents never asked me, actually, right, period. You would find it bizarre if the interviewer just kept insisting that it must have been your choice to be born, and specifically born on this particular day. No. And the truth is the same. In the ultimate sense, spiritually, it was not your choice to be born again either. It began with God's initiative, absolutely so. But you were a vital part of this whole process. In your experience of new birth, you voluntarily gave your first cry as a spiritual infant. Now, this new birth is a gift, and this hope you experience in this new birth is a gift as well. Now, why is this so important? Listen carefully. Because this means that you need to properly see your hope as a given position before it can inform your emotions. You need to see it as a position, a given position, before it can inform your emotions. Now, whether you feel hopeful today or you feel hopeless today, that's your emotion. That's how you feel. But when you're born again to a, a living hope, as Peter tells his readers, that living hope cannot be taken away on, you know. It cannot be taken away from you any more than you can just become unborn. You're already born. You cannot become unborn. When you feel, whether you feel hopeful or not, you are born again to a living hope. It is a gift already offered to you as a believer in Christ. You have a living hope. This hope is a gift, and you have a choice. You can choose to keep it wrapped and not use it for the rest of your lives, or you could unwrap it to enjoy it. But it is yours all the same. When you know that you are now born again to a position of hope, you're now free to enjoy the emotion of hope, even in the toughest of times. Even in the toughest of times. So this hope is a gift from God. That's the second point. Third point. Third characteristics of a living hope from God. This hope is grounded in the truth of the resurrection of Christ. This hope is grounded in the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Now verse 3 again mentions that Believers are born again to a living hope, specifically, underlying portion, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Now, here we have Christians in the 80s, 60s, and Peter's way of reminding them of their hope is to tell them that you have a hope that is grounded in a truth that happened about 30 years ago. Jesus Christ died on the cross, and three days later, he rose again. As another apostle, Apostle Paul tells us also in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not risen, our preaching is in vain. Even our faith is in vain. In fact, you don't have to listen to me anymore if Jesus Christ didn't resurrect. You can feel free to leave. You can switch off the live stream. There's no point listening. But the truth is, Christ is risen. He is alive. So this hope is not about positive thinking or just ignoring reality or staying optimistic. No. It's different because there is a truth on which this hope is standing on. Peter is telling his readers, you're not standing on sinking sand, you are standing on the risen Christ, the solid rock. And because Jesus experienced the bodily resurrection, all believers will have the blessed assurance of our own bodily resurrection to come when he returns. That's glorious. Now you may think, all right, okay, that's good. But honestly, it seems so far away. What difference does the resurrection of Jesus Christ make to me in the present? I say to you, plenty of difference. What's amazing is that this resurrection power, the Bible tells us, is available in the present. And it is really, really, really vital for a hope-filled life. You know, as a pastor, I speak with quite a number of people. And I can see that for some, when we mention the word hope, it can actually be a pretty scary word because hope is a pain-inducing word. In many people's minds, because of their experiences, the mantra is not no pain, no gain. It is no hope, then no pain. I don't dare to hope. Right? If you think this way, actually, you'll be one of those people in this world who have been hurt so much that you would say, I don't dare, I don't dare to hope anything. I don't dare to expect anything. Because the more I expect, the more I hope, the more it hurts. So if you think like that, and many people do, in your journey here on earth, you might actually end up numbing yourself to avoid pain. Maybe you've given up hope on your spouse because you're tired of him hurting you or her hurting you. You don't believe that your marriage can grow anyway. Maybe you're giving up hope on your future, right? You're so hurt that you don't dare to dream of making a positive impact anymore, of anything good possibly happening in your life. Now, I tell you, that's not how, how God wants us to think, what God intends for the life of hope at all. Uh, some of you attended the CDC AP conference recently, wonderful conference, and one of the keynote speakers, Paul Miller, he spent quite a lot of time talking about what he calls the J curve, and I'm showing you the curve here. Now, this is a simple pictorial representation of the dying and rising cycles in life. The biggest dying and rising, of course, happened literally with Jesus dying and rising again. You see that? But specifically on a day-to-day -day basis, we as believers actually reenact the gospel with many such J-curves in our lives. We participate in the suffering 
that comes with the dying, but then there is always that rising where God resurrects things again in our life, again and again in our lives. And God continues to do that spiritually again and again until we meet Him again. So there is a dying and then there's a rising. It's the same for every single believer, every single person. Now, to give up hope is to drop off, in, my, in the way I look at it, is to drop off the Jacob altogether. It's like you witness Jesus' death on the cross on Friday, and you see that gruesome scene, and you're so devastated, so hurt, that like, you don't dare to hope anymore. And then you just decide to walk away from it on Saturday. Because you, because you think that, if I don't expect anything whatsoever from this dead situation, this dead Jesus, it won't be so painful anymore. I won't hurt so much. I'm going to detach myself from this. But here's the thing. If you experience the dying on Friday, and you choose to numb yourself and drop off the Jacob on Saturday, you're going to miss the rising on Sunday that God wants to bless you with. As Paul Miller says, without the resurrection lens, we actually just get stuck in the dying. It just ends with the dying. No. We must develop an eye for the resurrection. Now, some of you might have given up hope on seeing the rising happening in your life. Maybe in a situation that has caused you much distress for the longest of time, or maybe in the salvation of a loved one. I want to say to you today, today is the day to remember again that even if it takes a long time, in some cases even decades actually, don't, don't get off that J-curve. Learn to hope again so that you'll be eager to step up to pray again, to act again, and to trust His timing. And you will see God's distinctive plan and it might even surprise you because you're not even thinking about that. God's plan for that rising after all that dying that you had gone through. Now, people, I want to encourage you, don't underestimate the resurrection power of Christ. This is pivotal to the life of hope. Viewing your life through resurrection lands is so critical to transforming your experience of hope in your daily life. So that's the third characteristic, the resurrection truth. The fourth one, this hope anticipates a glorious future inheritance. This hope anticipates a glorious future inheritance. Now we get this in verses 4 to 5. After Peter talks about being born again to a living hope, this is what he says. He says that this is also to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now again, Peter is using categories that would have been so familiar to the Jews, where the Lord brought Israel to the promised land, and He gave the land as inheritance to the different tribes. So the pattern is this. God promises inheritance for His people. His people expect that inheritance, and they follow God in obedience by faith. God-given faith, and eventually they get the promised inheritance. That's a pattern for God's people. Now, Peter is stressing here that this inheritance is significant. In the New Testament, you would see that inheritance is a different way of describing salvation and eternal life. 
Now look again at how Peter describes it emphatically to make his point. The underlying portion, Thomas Franks in his worship just now was emphasizing it too. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now he says here, that's what he says, undefiled means, you know, sorry, imperishable means incorruptible, undefiled means unstained, spotlessly clean. It's unfading as well. It will stand the test of time. It will always look new. And it will last forever. Alistair Begg, a Scottish pastor, and heard this one time, he gave this illustration for this text that I found really fascinating. He said that suppose you have a grandfather who dotes on you. You're just a little kid. And as a little child, you go to his house, and he's got this big desk that you really, really admire, exquisitely beautiful, very majestic looking, and it's just like, wow, it's beautiful for a president, Grandpa. And you go and sit on the chair, and you touch the desk, and admire it, and you just imagine what it's like, and you tell your grandpa, what a beautiful desk you have. And your grandpa sees the way you look at the desk, and then he comes over to you and tells you, you know what, you love it so much, my dear. I tell you what, when you grow up, and have your own place. I'm going to give this desk to you. It'll be yours. And then when you hear it, it's like, wow. It changes you. Every time you look at that desk, like, that's going to be mine one day. Grandpa's going to give it to me. And every time your parents bring it to your grandpa's house again, you would just make sure that nobody's going to spoil this desk, right? No coffee stains or whatever. Go away, far away. Don't damage it. It's mine next time, right? You will do whatever you can to take good care of it. But when... You know, imagine it's transported to your house many, many, many years later. Actually, the chances of it not having a single stain, a single chip, or damage along the way to the transportation and to the many years of wear and tear, super small, highly unlikely. But what God has prepared for you in heaven above is infinitely better than your grandpa's admirable desk. What God has prepared for you will never perish. It will never become stained or filthy. It will never lose its luster or beauty. It is exactly what you perfectly admire or could never fully experience in this lifetime. And this beautiful inheritance has your name written on it. It is yours. What do you have in this world that comes even close to that? Not your car, not your house, not your looks, not your achievements, nothing. Nothing comes close to God's inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Do you see why there's so much hope for the believer? Don't neglect this precious hope you have. Don't neglect it. Number five, this hope helps you to endure the testing of your faith. This hope helps you to endure the testing of your faith. Now, Peter in verses 6 to 7, he applies his hope to the present trials of their readers, and then he gives the reason for these trials that they're experiencing in this hostile world. He, say, he says in verses 6 to 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So here Peter is saying that all that has been said about the living hope gives his readers joy. But he also knows this, that in the present, and he says, for a little while, and that actually means the whole duration of their early lives for the little while, they would encounter suffering. There would be grief as they encounter trials in this hostile world. And the reason for all the suffering and trials, Peter says, is for the testing of their faith. Peter says it's like, it's like a furnace that turns up the heat, putting gold to the test, refining and proving it through the fire. And what's tested here is even more precious than gold. Peter says that if your faith is proven genuine, it would result in praise, glory, and honor together with Christ when He returns for you. Now, two things to strengthen your sense of hope in your suffering when it comes. Or maybe even right now, if you are going through a difficult season. First thing, look at the little phrase, if necessary, that I've just underlined. Interesting, peculiar inclusion, if necessary. Peter means to say this. As a believer, your suffering in life is never random. In other words, they are not meaningless. If it has happened in your life, it is only because in the ultimate sense, those various trials are necessary to do the good that God has intended for you. Necessarily so. And in, you don't even need to understand how it works, actually. All you need to do is to just believe that they do. Because you actually don't need to understand everything the heart surgeon is going to do to you to benefit from the heart surgery. Just go in, believing that, yes, it will do me good, and whatever he does will be necessary. I don't need to know all those details. The good will come. God will make use of the things that cause you the most fear, grief, and pain to work redemptively for you. Your suffering in this broken world is necessarily meaningful suffering. God will use it to produce good to strengthen your faith. So cherish this little phrase, if necessary, in 1 Peter 1. Be encouraged by that. Second, look at what the suffering is not doing. It is not testing your performance. It is testing the genuineness of your faith. You see that in verse 7, the underlying portion? Tested genuineness of your faith not testing your performance. Now, Peter would know this because as an apostle, his track record was embarrassing. He nearly drowned when he stepped out to walk on water. He started talking nonsense when he saw Moses and Elijah at the Mount of Transfiguration. He made the mistake of scolding Jesus when Jesus told him his plan to die on the cross. And he denied Jesus three times, despite boasting that he would rather die than do so. Talk about failure. Peter knows the feeling of that of a fool, feeling like a fool, like a failure, failure very well. Now, you and I may know that feeling too. Do you ever feel that you have failed in your studies, in your work, in your ministry, as a parent, so on and so forth? Tested and found lacking. Not good enough. Not good enough. 
says the world. But here's the word of comfort. Oftentimes, it's in the greatest failures of your performance that reveal you've passed the test of faith. Not in the sense that you were perfectly obedient or perfectly faithful, but rather that you have learned to cling on to God, to trust in Him, to rest in Him more than ever before in this hostile world. When suffering comes, remember this, you must look into the future with hope. For it is this future-oriented hope in the Lord that helps you to endure the test of your faith. And lastly, sixth characteristic, this hope helps you to see Christ not with your eyes, but with your heart. This hope helps you to see Christ not with your eyes, but with your heart. Now, here's a question for you. Do you love Jesus? Like, seriously, just think about that for a bit. Do you love Jesus? Now, after you've answered that in your heart, now answer this follow-up question. How do you love someone whom you have never seen before? You know, little kids like to ask that question. I've never seen this Jesus. How, 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 do, I, how do I love this person? Right? Most, if not all the time, you would have seen the person you love or at least heard his or her voice. Literally. How do you love someone who you've never seen physically? When Peter wrote this letter and sent it to the different regions in Asia Minor, this was the 8060s I mentioned, it's been 30 years since Jesus died and rose to heaven. And these believers have not seen this Jesus before. Yet they believed in him. In fact, they loved him. How is that possible? It is possible. Verses 8 to 9, Peter writes this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now notice in context that this is actually not a command. This is Peter's commendation of what he knows about them to be true. Imagine your name there. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You love this Jesus. What, what a commendation. Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 20, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The recipients of Peter's letter here, these are the blessed ones who have never got to see Jesus, but they loved Him. They believed in Him. They rejoiced in Him. When Peter says see, he's talking about physical vision here. But let me extend this to say that we believers do see, but we see not with our eyes, but with our hearts. And it is, and it is this God-given living hope that keeps the vision of our hearts clear to behold Christ, not physically, but spiritually. I realize in my pastoral ministry that it's often those who have lost the sense of hope in their hearts that struggle the most to see the reality of Christ. When you stop hoping, the Lord feels really, really, really far away. 
And you may start saying, where are you, God? I can't see you at all. It's pitch dark. Now listen, dear people. Hope is a light in the darkness for you. Hope is the light in the darkness for you. Hope in the Lord again. And the light will shine for you to behold Christ afresh, to love Him, believe in Him, to delight in Him again. Now, these are the six characteristics of a living hope that I've mentioned from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. But let me end with this story of a man who embodied such a life of hope in this hostile world. In 1908, a young American man by the name of Bill Wallace, at the age of 17, he heard God's call to medical missions. He heard, he wrote down his commitment on the back of his New Testament, and he never turned back ever since. After college and medical school, he turned down a lucrative offer to become a partner with an outstanding surgeon. In 1935, he was appointed to China by the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board, because back then, China was the key area of missions for the Southern Baptists. So Bill Wallace went to Wuchao in southern China, and he served as a surgeon in the hospital there. He gained a reputation as a gifted surgeon, a tireless worker, absolutely committed servant of Christ. Great blessing to the Chinese there. During World War II, when the Japanese started bombing China, there was an account one time he was doing surgery and then the hospital took a direct hit, boom. But he was halfway through the surgery. And he continued with the surgery, even in the midst of the bombing. That was his dedication. Thereafter, he went back to the States for a short while, just a short break, and when he returned in 1940 to China, he refused to leave Wu Chao even as the invading Japanese closed in. So many people were urging him to leave. They said, no, I will stay as long as I'm able to serve. After World War II, by the time of the Korean War in 1950, missionaries were no longer welcome in China. There was a very intense anti-American propaganda, and the local authorities arrested Wallace, accusing him of being a spy. So those who were able to visit him in jail reported that he was being interrogated and tortured. But he urged his friends, go on back, take care of the hospital. I am ready to give my life if necessary. Now, how was he even able to say that? I believe he must have possessed a deep sense of the kind of living hope described in 1 Peter in the midst of his trials. Two months later, in jail, he died. The many marks on his body showed that he had probably died from physical abuse. The authorities did not allow any religious service for him. He had to be quietly buried. Now, his Chinese friends of Wu Chao, however, were deeply grateful to him. And they risked punishment from the authorities to put up a monument on his unmarked grave with these words from the Apostle Paul, for to me, to live is Christ. His death as a martyr in 1951 had a huge impact on Southern Baptist missions. In the eyes of God and many saints, his was not a tragedy. 
his was a life of true biblical hope. And he did great things in the eyes of the Lord before he was brought home to heaven. His story was an inspiration to the many missionaries in the 1950s waiting upon the call of God upon their lives. Now, with the doors of China closed, the Southern Baptist Foreign Mission Board prayerfully adopted a new strategy to reach the other parts of Asia. Which countries shall we go now that China cannot? We can't go there anymore. And they prayed and they went to different places, sent missionaries all over. Two years later, 1953, a 30-year-old lady responded to the call to become one of the first Southern Baptist missionaries appointed to Singapore. And you know the story. Her name is Lily O. Rogers. And among her good work in Singapore over 33 years, she planted Agape Baptist Church in 1984. As people love to say, the rest is history. Only God knows the impact, fully knows the impact of a life given wholeheartedly to hope in the Lord. In every generation, God continues to call men and women to live out this life of hope. And as you're hearing me today, here at Dorset and at the live stream as well, I want to give you a call. How do you live in this hostile world? My charge to you today is you must live a life of hope. And this life of hope is not just for yourself, not a life that just seeks to hide and preserve yourself in this hostile world. It is the kind of hope that avails yourself to be used actively and sacrificially by God. Whatever God has called you to, specifically you, specifically you to do, do so with the living hope from God. This day our living God invites you to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast. You can find more of our sermons online on our website at www.agape.org.sg